Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. So this is the end, the wrap of season two of the Being Known Podcast. Here we are. Can you believe it? Man, can you believe it? I can't. I can't even. I mean, I can't even. Like, this didn't exist, <laughs> you know, like, and now it does. Five, four, four months ago. Right. 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 Yeah. It was just a thought, and, and now here it is. And um, I'm excited about today as we're going to sort of uh, do a 10,000-foot look at the season and kind of go through the, the different episodes. And last year when we did this, I received a little bit of criticism from some of our team for— <laughs> <laughs> for not mentioning every episode. So, I think how we'll start today is by going through each episode um, so that I don't receive that criticism again, <laughs> that I don't miss anything. Right. So, we started this season with okay, a, wait, wait, I just want to, yes. wait, wait, wait. I just yes. want to remind you. Remind don't, me. Don't forget, yeah, because, you know, of what happened last time we did this. Yes. Don't forget to mention the episode that we had on the six degrees. Yes. Yes. No, no doubt about, no doubt about it. So we, 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 we started the season, um, with the general idea of integration. So the entire season, as you know, has been about the nine domains of integration and, uh, just by introducing that subject of integration. So I'm going to name for you what the, uh, nine domains are right now. Okay. So we've got consciousness, We've got the vertical domain, the horizontal domain, the domain of memory, the narrative domain, the domain of state, interpersonal domain, temporal domain, and that made-up word, transpirational <laughs> domain. And so there. So I, I mentioned them all. You mentioned so them all. So this can go anywhere at once now for the next 50 minutes. So... Let's talk a little bit. Let's re remember what we talked about with that first that first episode on integration, where you talked about this symphony and yeah. this this river between chaos and rigidity. Let's talk about that mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, Pepper, I, I'm just really that 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 particular metaphor continues to kind of like work its way into my soul. I think this this notion of me being aware that there are all these different domains that I have and that I, you know, that I'm realizing even now as a 58 year old, there are a number of ways in which any one of these domains still need a ton of work. Hmm. You know, the, my string section, my, my brass section, like they need a ton of work on certain parts of this symphony that we're trying to produce. And so I think it was just really helpful for me to, to have that be brought to my attention. And simultaneously, not just those domains within me, but, you know, we extend this eventually to this notion of how St. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 12 about the body of Christ. And so we like to talk about this notion that the integration process that's taking place within any one of us as individuals is also being expressed by God in the larger landscape of our mm -hmm. interpersonal experiences within the communities and between communities. And I think of, you know, over the course of the time that we've recorded this, I, I think of the things that have taken place that have been really difficult and challenging in our country and culture and so forth, and the ways in which this process also uh, brings me close to wanting to do the hard work 
of integration when it comes to racial uh, violence. You know, the, the, the violence that I, you know, that, that, that we as white folks have perpetrated over the, over the course of time, like all, all, those, all those things that we work with, the, the political violence, all those kinds of things. And even within, you know, the family of faith, you know, how there are fracture lines between people of faith. And I, I just, I think I've just been really convicted in the course of this conversation that we've had this season about God longing, God's longing for me to long to be doing the work of connecting uh, with those differentiated parts. Uh, and that I can only do that as well as I can to the degree that I'm, I'm, I'm allowing others to work on these parts. Yeah. You know, with yeah. me as well. Great. So in order to do this work, we have to be awake, alert, and attuned. And that brings us to our uh, second episode of the season, which was on the domain of consciousness. Yeah. So let's let's talk yeah. about that. Well, you know, it's it's funny. Just this morning, so I'm we're, we're recording this here, and this morning I was having this conversation with my 83 year old mother in law, who's visiting for the weekend here with us, and just love her dearly. And we were both talking about different ways in each of our lives of how things happened to us, traumatic events that happened to us, small ways, some large ways, but mostly for me, small ways, but that I've only recently become conscious of. And I think about this domain of consciousness, you know, one of the ways in which it's affected me, even as we've been doing, recording this particular series, I've had, and I've been making discoveries even as a 58-year-old, making discoveries about things that happened in the first, you know, 15, 18 years of my life that certainly three years ago I wasn't paying attention to in the way that I'm now paying attention to them. I was conscious of the reality of the events, but not viscerally consciously connected to the emotional content of those events. And, you know, I'm, I'm fully persuaded that uh, part of how I become aware of this is the conversations that we're having on Friday mornings. Hmm. These conversations are inviting me to be reflective of these things and to do so in the context. I'm not just thinking about these things in the abstract in the privacy of my own mind. We're talking about them. You and Amy and I are having these conversations in which I, you know, I feel your curiosity. I feel your care. I feel your empathy. I... And, and I also hear you both talking about your own pursuit in your own lives about things that you are becoming more consciously aware of. I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll probably get to this, but, you know, you're a whole lawnmower um, right. <laughs> event, right? But that, that, that brings to your consciousness yep. things about your own early years that if your neighbor is not doing what your neighbor does, uh, we don't get access to that. And so I, you know, I hope that you all are finding that you're becoming more conscious of the things that you long for. This is the other thing that we wanna be conscious of the things that we long for, because so often I don't just bury my wounds, along with them go my longings. Right. Because so many of my longings are connected to my wounds and my wounds are connected to those desires that I have such that when I bury my wounds, I also stop paying attention to what I most deeply long for. 
And so I'm not just becoming conscious of the things that are painful, but conscious of the things that I long for in such a way that it's tricky, right? Because like, well, do I want to now name these things that I long for? Because what happens if, you know, I, 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 I longed to be loved when I was four and 14 and it didn't happen. Now when I'm 58, if I, if I name it, is it what, like, no, I don't want to take the risk of like finding out that once again, no, sorry, we're not interested. And so we discovered that consciousness is a tricky thing. And, you know, this is kind of what Jesus was doing, right? He was raising people's conscious awareness of things, some of which it was hard for them to even grapple with. But as they became aware of it, you know, they have this, this you know, they, they discover that they're on the precipice of choosing to walk into the light, which is both illuminating, but also can like really hurt your eyes if you've been in the dark for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So in episode three, we started we we talked about the vertical domain, and we we started um, paying attention to the material world and yeah. um, and how that impacts us. And so so you talked about the triune brain, and talk, talk about that a little bit the 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 brainstem, the limbic, yeah. yeah, yeah. This this notion that you know we you know we humans we walk around and most of our conscious waking moments we we're not paying that much attention to our bodies. We're not paying that much attention to our bodies until, you know, we're, we're hurt badly, like we have an injury. We often don't pay attention to how our bodies are trying to communicate to us uh, about our anxiety and about our distress and about our sadness and about our longings. And we often aren't aware that our bodies hold our traumas. Instead, we've just really kind of worked to tamp all that down. You know, I mean... Pepper, it's been a while since we've actually been physically in the same place, and uh, yeah. I love getting to see you on the screen. But I know that one of the things that I enjoy most about when we come together, when we haven't seen each other, like the hug, yeah, like, like you know, you just want to bottle it and 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 just I just want to keep that right on my shelf and just mm. keep it right with me, right? This felt sense of being embraced by somebody that you love and that loves you. I remember I was. Uh, I've been invited to help with a number of other people, help facilitate a retreat in Colorado a number of years ago. And uh, the gentleman who was leading this and who was hosting all this, a friend of mine, John Michael Cusick, um, Mike, Michael Cusick, um, Michael John Cusick, um, we greeted one another. And, uh, and later on in the weekend, I was in the middle of having a really kind of a challenging time. And I remember him giving me a hug. And I'm like, you know, we all kind of know, we all, with, without like going to class, without taking a course on how long the hug should last, we all kind of know like how long it should last. Like, oh no, that, no, that's, that's too long. <laughs> now, now it's, now it's weird. Now it's weird. It's officially weird. Like, let From alone, a hugging you know, to you know, a mugging. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And of course we now have our, our Christian brand of this, right? It's the side hug. Like, sure. I, like I, again, like I missed the coursework on this. I didn't, I, like I, the first time a side hug happened between me and a woman, which is of course appropriate. Like I didn't really, like, I didn't really quite get that. Like, but, no, but I understand. I, I understand it and it makes right. sense. But Michael embraced me and I'm like, okay. And are we done? No. And he must have held me for 60 seconds. And it was at a time in which, like, after a few seconds, you just, like, release yourself into it because you're like, 
I've actually been looking for a 60-second hug for 50 years Mm. and didn't know it. And so my brainstem, which registers all my fear, so much of my fear, along with my amygdala, my brainstem, like it's just looking for, you know, it's just trying to protect, protect, protect my fight or flight system. And it's on high, it's looking for stuff all the time. And then it activates my, you know, we go further up this triune brain to, you know, that we move out of the reptilian brain like we have in common with reptiles. And then we move from there to this limbic circuitry that we have in common with lower mammals, where now we're feeling things, this source of our emotion. We, it's not just fight or flight. It's not just that one binary choice. It's, no, I have feelings about this. And these feelings then start to differentiate themselves from sadness to grief to joy to anger, all those kinds of things. And then I move forward into my prefrontal cortex where I sense that I can think about what I feel. I can make plans for things. And my prefrontal cortex also has the capacity to regulate my brainstem and my limbic circuitry. I can reflect and think and say, no, I'm not going to lash out at my son or my daughter now. My prefrontal cortex has the capacity to do that, but it can't do it if it hasn't been trained how to do it. When left to my own accord, my prefrontal cortex will work, but when in a time of distress, the conductor is going to leave the stage because the trumpets are rebelling and the conductor is too frightened about this and the conductor doesn't know what to do, so he just leaves the stage. And next thing you know, the trumpeters are picking up their brass and they're just whacking everybody else in the head with them. The carnage, right? Yeah. And so this ascendancy, right, this progression, this hierarchy of brainstem to limbic circuitry to prefrontal cortex, and then prefrontal cortex coming back down around and helping to regulate the limbic circuitry and the brainstem is this elegant way that we've been created, but that is often so difficult for us to learn how to put into practice if I haven't had someone from the outside coming and helping me learn how to do this. A two-year-old is not going to learn how to self-regulate. And if they don't have help from the outside to learn how to do that, they're not going to self-regulate when they're 12 or 52. And we all know what that's like to be those 50-year-olds who are acting like two-year-olds at times. I mean, my wife has had plenty of experience with that with me. <laughs> it's, not, it's not fun when she says, okay, you need a timeout. Right, <laughs> right. So you established the, the, the vertical domain there, and so, so then we went from there to the horizontal domain. And one of the things that I remember learning in that episode was my preconceived notion of we are either right-brained or left-brained. You kind of blew out of the water for us. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I, you know, the, the work of Ian McGilchrist, a psychiatrist from Great Britain who's written this elegant book called the master and his emissary, I think tells, you know, is, is really helpful in reminding us that there, uh, you know, most things that the right, that, that, that we do is a shared experience between the right and the left brain. There are actually a lot of things that the right and left brain can do equally well if given the opportunity uh, in terms of all those things that we think that we, we typically, you know, cordon off for certain 
for certain parts. But eventually, in, in, in most cases, the right and left brain do eventually kind of differentiate into particular activities, but not because, you know, the right brain is the only half of the brain that can do certain things, but, but they become kind of like trained to do this. But one thing that is different, and that has to do like, like inherently and from the beginning that is different between these two halves of the brain is the way they tend to pay attention to the world, the way we pay attention. If I pay attention to the world primarily through the right brain, which is what newborns and infants and toddlers are often doing before the left brain comes online, we're just really pretty open to the universe. We're like experiences come to us. We are experiencing them. Now we, they, they may be difficult. They may be painful. They may be joyful. They may be fun. They all range different things, but I'm not in the, I'm just in the middle of these experiences. I don't have any distance from them in order for me to observe them and then judge them, analyze them, and then use them and manipulate them. I'm just in them. As we know, right? Like, the two-year-old who has a temper tantrum in Safeway and just falls down on the ground is like they, like they don't care if anybody sees him. Like they're not viewing the rest of the crowd and observing their own behavior and saying like, this is probably not very good for my mom or anybody else. I think I'm just going to, I think I'll stop now. No, they're just in the tantrum and they're, they're going to be there until they're, you know, darn good and ready to be done. I've got to say this really quick. Okay. So okay. I, was, I was too old to, I wasn't two years old and it wasn't a tantrum, but... I was in the grocery store with my mom as a, as a young boy, and I put on a death scene in the middle of the store that, you know, Olivier would have been envious of. And I die, and I'm laying on the, on the floor of the grocery store, and I wouldn't get up. Like, I was so committed. I was dead. <laughs> and I didn't care who saw me. My mom's literally dragging me across the floor. <laughs> and I'm... And I'm not moving. <laughs> Dude, you knew then that you were a born actor. Oh, I was oh born something, gosh. that's for sure. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I never knew that story. Uh, Did you, what, was it just it, something just kind of came over you? Like, I'm just going to play dead? I'm oh, gonna be it a wasn't just here. play dead. It was like I had this whole, I was shot or something. I had this whole. Oh, my gracious. And my mom's looking at me. I'm just going, oh. <laughs> People are looking. She's embarrassed. Oh, gracious. And she's gracious. dragging you across the dragging floor. Dragging me across the floor. Store. Pepper, come on. <laughs> Knock it off. But I was a method actor, even at that age. I wasn't. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there was no reviving me. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That hurts me. That's really funny. That's beautiful. Mm. Right, so your your right brain was like completely committed to the moment. <laughs> it was. It for was sure. completely committed. Yeah. Well, it's at, at some point when our left brain comes online, we discover that we can, you know, we can actually analyze those things. We can separate ourselves. We step away. And and it's good for us to be able to do this because we can then do math and we can figure problems out. We can change a tire. We can run computers. We can do a whole range of things. But the other challenge with this, of course, is that because of the work of shame, we then can, in that analysis, we then pour a ton of shame into that analytical process. And before you know it, it's not just analysis, it's condemnation. Yeah. And we carry that out 
that condemnation process through our distanced left hemispheric engagement with the world, we first target ourselves and then we start to share that process with the world. Mm. And it's in that space of condemnation that's, that, all, that our violence arises. Our violence toward ourselves, our violence toward others, first in our thoughts and then our words and then our actions. And then, you know, we extend it socially, culturally, you know, governmentally, um, all the things that we're doing that are, that are, you know, that are just really difficult for us in that regard. And so um, we like to say, as McGilchrist points out, that, you know, we've become an overly dominant left hemispherically functioning culture. It's not that the left hemisphere is bad. It's just that it has usurped its role. It has, it has overextended its reach in terms of how we live in the world and a more integrated. So it would be, again, it's like, you know, the brass instruments in the, in the symphony. I don't know why I'm picking on the brass folks so yeah, much. Those right? guys. Yeah. But, you know, there's so much trouble. They are always. You know, they just decide, no, we're, we're going to hijack the symphony. And wherever we have, you know, we're, we're supposed to either not be playing or we're going to make our own stuff up. Or where we are playing, we're going to play it as loud as we can. And no one else really gets to have their role in the symphony. And so we then, you know, shame tends to be a dominant force for us through that hmm. process of analysis. And disintegration then begins to actively happen. It's not just that we pause on the integration process. We disintegrate ourselves and disintegrate ourselves from other people. And this is, you know, we've talked about this process of how being known is a way for us to not just be more connected and integrated, but on, we do so on the way to creating beauty. And so one of the ways that we invite and coax the left hemisphere to kind of like give up its task, kind of relax its grip on our world's reality is to put ourselves in the path of oncoming beauty. Is mm. to just invite the left brain to just pause. We're just gonna sit with this Rothko. We're gonna sit with this piece by David Wilcox. We're gonna sit with we're gonna sit with this particular poem, right? That okay, wait. I loved I, I don't even remember what it was it was maybe it was the first season. I loved when you quoted the Wendell Berry poem. Yeah. Yeah. Like that kind of work, that kind of work gives the right hemisphere breathing space and allows our left hemisphere to relax such that we we discover that shame does not have to be in charge of our lives. It's a first step toward that. That's great. Well, out of episode four, we came into episode five, which was the domain of memory. And you said something, and I'd like you to talk about this a little bit. You said, there's nothing we do in the world that doesn't involve memory. Yeah. Explain that. We remember our future in the sense that we come into the world. And from the moment that, you know, that newborn is wrapped up in like clothes, the newborn is just absorbing experience. And as the newborn absorbs absorbs experience, that experience is being extended into and is informing the newly activated and activating anticipatory neural networks in that newborn's brain. And so when you first come into the world, there's nothing about the world that you know, and so everything is new. I don't have any capacity to explicitly remember things yet. So it's not like I can, you know, 10 days after birth, 
recall with horror the trip through the canal to get here. I don't want to think about that, if it, right. even if I could. But at some point, all of this completely novel incoming experiential information, if you will, begins actually to activate and strengthen what I then anticipate the next time I see something familiar to it. So I remember, like, you know, I don't know anything about nursing at my mother's breast. I don't know anything about that when I first came into the world. But after all, like, it doesn't take very long for, you'll notice the newborns, like, they, they look like they know what they want, despite the fact that their left hemisphere is not developed yet enough for them to be able to say, hey, mom, could I please have lunch? Right. I'd like to have lunch. No, they just move toward her. They, they, right, they move toward, there's a sense in which they are anticipating things that they've already learned. And so already their memory is speaking into their future. They begin to cry and they are comforted and they cry again and they're comforted and they cry again and they're comforted. And at some point they begin to learn that there is this rhythm and dance of like, when I'm in distress, I'm looking for someone else from the outside to help me regulate this. And if parents are attuned to this, parents are coming. And so children then have, anticipate that if I cry, they come running for their parent by the time they're toddled. They can, because they, they're anticipating in their future that comfort is coming because they remember that this is what's happened. And this general process then begins to develop, and it's when our left brain comes online and become more, we develop explicit memory, these two different kinds of memory, mm -hmm. implicit and explicit memory. We then both beautifully anticipate the capacity to take risks that even if we take risks, like I'm going to run across the room and if I fall down and skin my knee, like the skin knee will get bandaged up and I'll learn that like, oh, you can have a skin knee and be okay. And so it doesn't scare me then from running across the room again. The trouble and the challenge comes when that process of memory also begins to include experiences of traumas that were not repaired, you know, wounds that were not healed, ruptures that were not repaired. Right. And the thing is, Pepper, so many of the most important traumatic experiences that we have in our lives take place in the context of intimate relationships. And so I'm not just remembering that I felt bad when I heard my father yelling at my mother. Or I felt bad when I was upset and my mother locked herself in her room. I also remember that it was my mother who locked herself in her room. I remember that it was my father whom I looked to for protection hmm. who was yelling at my mother. And I remember that intimacy is a dangerous thing. And I anticipate that intimacy will be a dangerous thing without even knowing that that's what I'm encoding. It doesn't keep me from longing for intimacy. Right. You know, if I were to be really thirsty and I drank water and it turned out the water wasn't purified and I got sick, I'm going to be wary of drinking water, but it's not going to keep me from being thirsty. Right. And so this is where memory is both a beautiful thing in that, like, you know, you develop enough memory that you are then eventually able to drive a car while your friend who's a passenger is with you and you guys can have a conversation about really important things while you're on this long drive you can look out the window and see the bald eagle that's flying by and you can 
you know, remark at that and be overwhelmed with that while you're still driving your car because you are remembering how to do this. And your brain is anticipating the turn and the brake and the right and the left turns and all those kinds of things while you're having this conversation. We can do this. Memory's a beautiful thing. But it also means that I then get married to someone with the anticipation of intimacy and connection and so forth and so on. And, you know, you're, you're married for about six hours and you discover like, oh my gosh, or six months or six years. And you discover that, oh my goodness, there are these things, this unfinished business of, you know, ruptures that haven't been repaired in my life from the first two decades of my life, or maybe even longer that I haven't ever, ever addressed. I know that many of you, I, I we've, we've heard from you. We know of, of the stories of people who have had histories of sexual abuse that they've not told maybe anyone. And they've not even told the person that they're married to for 20 years until something comes up in, in the marriage or something comes up in life together. And then finally all this tumbles out and you discover that so much of my life that I've anticipated the future has been driven by my memory of this, but I haven't even paid attention to it because it's too overwhelming and painful for me to address. And, uh, you know, one of the things that is so remarkable about the story in the gospels and that, you know, we don't hear much about this in Protestant traditions, but in Catholic and Anglican traditions, you hear, in Orthodox traditions, you hear an awful lot about Holy Saturday, the day between Good Friday and Easter. The day, and it's, it's not just tradition, right? This is, this is First Peter, right? This, it's in the scriptures, right? This notion that Jesus preached to the dead. And what that tells us is that there's no part of our history that he's not coming for. The part of our lives that we thought were dead, he's preaching to them. And he's, he's asking them, he's telling them to wake up because he's got beauty and goodness waiting for him. You're like, there's just no way that can be possible. There's no way that parts about me that were dead, like that's in the past, it happened, there's nothing I can do about it. That memory is a fixed thing that happened at an event back in 1983. And Jesus is coming and saying, like, yep, and I was there. You couldn't see me because you weren't ready to in your life. It so made it hard for you to hear me, see me. It's true for most of the world. But it doesn't mean I was any less present. And now I want to wake you up to what's always been the case. That there's no part of your memory that I am not intending to heal. No stone we're going to leave unturned. I'm coming for all of it. So that the future that you anticipate will be anticipated from a different remembered past. Hmm. Because what we remember becomes our anticipated future. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You talked in, in that episode about how storytelling is a function of how we remember and I'm going to use that as a segue into uh, our, our next episode, which was the narrative domain. And you asked the question, who are the people who are telling us the true story? Yeah. And why is that important? Yeah. Well, you know what? I'd love to hear. I, 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 I'd love to hear you talk about this because I, I know that you have friends, you have men in your life that you're talking with on a regular basis. I'd love to hear you talk about what that's like for you. Well, I, yeah, so I've, I've uh, as I've shared, said to you on multiple occasions that, you know, I feel like I've had an embarrassment of riches when it comes to men that, you know, came looking for me 
and found mm. me and mm. brought things out in me that I didn't know were there before. And so uh, one particular guy by the name of uh, Gene Wahlberg, uh, Gene was a friend of mine from my time in Los Angeles, California. Um, I met Gene through through church at uh, in Hollywood, and he said on that first meeting, he said, hey, let's have breakfast sometime. And I said, okay. He said, how about next Wednesday at 6 a.m.? So for close to, I want to say, 15 years, we met every Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. at Dupar's restaurant in Studio City, California, where we shared our lives together. It wasn't, I mean, he was definitely in the mentor role, but there was so much give and take there where he would share his story with me and I would encourage him in his story and he would do the same with me every morning. And I remember one, he he wanted to go see at a very complicated childhood where his mother died in childbirth and he was ostensibly raised by an aunt and uncle. And he hadn't been able to go to their grave sites for, he didn't know where they all were and all this. And so we found him. And I took we, him down. You and he to, did. Yeah. So I took him down to this cemetery. In Cal- down they're, they're in California? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, I have a picture of him just draped over his his mother's gravestone. And um, so we shared, a, you know, a lot of life together. And, right. And just him building in to me and when I would say stuff about myself or whatever, you know, he would come back with, you're a Boy Scout. <laughs> you know, look at what I've done with my life. And, you know, it, it's, uh, he would just be encouraging. And I, I, I remember a particular time where I, I was talking about with him about some things that, you know, shame was coming up and I was, I was hmm. even uncomfortable in, in talking to him about it. And when I finished, he just looked at me and said, I love you more than I did when you walked oh. in the door. Oh. <laughs> right? There's no, there's no price you can put on that. No, no. no. Well, it, there is. It's about fourteen ninety five for the eggs and pancakes that we had that morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there is no price. In seriousness, there isn't. I'm, I'm a very lucky person yeah. to have had people and others in my life that breathed life into me. Yeah. That, that I, honestly, I want to say, and I don't want to be, I didn't deserve. I didn't, you know, I yeah. didn't earn. I just, you right. know, it was right. Um, yeah, very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think about this, you know, this narrative domain. I, the story that you just told, like, it just it just cuts me right to the quick. Like this whole notion of having someone pursue you and stay mm-hmm. with you mm-hmm. and tell you you're a Boy Scout when you need to hear that you're a Boy Scout and tell you that you're loved more in the wake of sharing something that, you know, you feel, you know, where there's shame that's part of that. You're loved more now than before you shared it. And this whole notion that attachment, secure attachment that we talked a little bit about during that narrative time and how we tell our stories is all bound up in someone coming to find us and our being our willingness to really pursue that. So yeah. that's really an important part about that domain. Yeah. 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 So out of uh, the narrative domain, we entered into the domain of state and um, I thought we were going to be talking about Alexander Haig that day, as I recall. <laughs> <But it> was, <laughs> he was not the domain of state. 
<laughs> Although he thought he was. <laughs> he, might he, he thought he was. He, he thought he have. was. Um, I thought he was. Can you talk about one of the things that I was fascinated with in that episode was this idea of transitions and the importance mm-hmm. of transitions. I'd love for you mm-hmm. to talk about that a minute. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll, I'll just, just to give a quick example, you know, I'm 58 and I, uh, just this past week, I'm, I had a couple of experiences in which I found myself feeling older and mm-hmm. like on the outside looking in. My wife and I were 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 an event in which I'm I'm you know we're usually uh, not not the center of things, but I felt I felt more on the periphery than I ever had before hmm. in an event with a group of people that I usually felt much more in this you know kind of like a centralized role, and it wasn't because anybody was pushing us out. There was nothing you know no there was no harm done. There's there was no malintent, nothing about this. But it is there is this certain process of what happens when you're when you when you're aging, and I'm not. I realize that I'm not you know, aged in that sense. I'm 58. I feel like I'm younger than that by far. But there is a certain sense in which just the course of life does. And I'm in the middle of transition. And then this past week, I was in our staff meeting. And uh, I I just, I I work for this practice, with with this practice that is just amazing, just stunning. And and the people who are working there are, are, are like, really working hard at getting great training with, with new and emerging treatments uh, treatment um, things that we can offer to patients, and they're really doing that. And I am paying attention to those things, but I'm also I have another task at hand, that, you know, that my job. But I'm just aware of feeling kind of like a bit on the outside, looking in. Mm-hmm. And so, having a conversation with one of those folks uh, just just yesterday, one of my colleagues, she was just really able to help me make the transition. Like saying, like Kurt, like you have a particular role that you're playing here, that only you can play, and we need you to play it. We need you. It's not like it's okay for you to play it. It's not just like yeah, that's fine for you to play it. No, we're we're all fine. No, she's like, no, we need you to play because if you don't do your part, like we don't get to do our part. And so there's this sense in which, yeah, there is a real transition because of how my life is changing a little bit, you know, professionally. And the more work that I get to do that's outside the clinic. But that whole notion of moving from one place to another, whether it's a big transition in our life Mm -hmm. stage, or if it's a transition from my office to my kitchen, coming home at the end of the day, or if it's the transition from, you know, we, you know, as we said, we think we're we're moving in our conversation because we think we're going to have sex with our, you know, spouses and like, I say, you know, three words come out of my mouth the wrong way and like, it ain't happening, right? And that, like, how do we transition in these, and that so much of our difficulty in life, either in large or small ways, comes because of the difficulty that emerges in these moments of transition. And so part of what's helpful is for us to have someone else who helps us make that journey. That's part of the thing. Like, again, this whole notion of isolation is such a big, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. But evil depends upon our being alone, right? It's just that isolated conversation with Eve. He's just talking to Eve. He's just going to have a conversation with Eve, not with Eve and Adam. He doesn't wait for God to show up to have a conversation together as a community. No, we're just going to talk to one person. And that one person gets isolated. And when I'm isolated, it makes, me, it, makes it difficult for me to make that transition from one thing to the next. And so I, just, I, thank, I thank God for my colleagues, you know, Courtney Morrison and Kelsey Myers, who helped me make that transition over the last two or three days about something that was like really unsettling for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's great that you have people in your life that are doing that with you. Yeah. 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 It's a great yeah. gift. Yeah. 
Uh, and I think that kind of brings us to the the our next domain, which is uh, the interpersonal domain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, we talked about how we tend to see others and ourselves as being independent of each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think you just gave an example of how that's not necessarily true. Yeah. It's it's actually, you know, we, we like to talk about this notion that we as human beings are rhythmic beings, that we do have things that we do do that we, we have our own agency for, right? If if you don't and I don't and Amy doesn't do the things that we each three need to do, this podcast doesn't happen. So it does need my individual agency, your individual agency, but it's also equally true that none of this happens if I think I'm doing this on my own. But, you know, it is a, it, it, it's, it's a human thing to think that I can do this on my own. This is Genesis chapter three. It's a human thing. And in our particular setting, you know, kind of like a, a kind of uh, a European Western modernist way of like, I can do this on my own because I am on my own to begin with. It's not just that I, I come up with that I, I can do it because I have to do it on my own because I am on my own. And this is part of the problem. This is where it begins. It's not just that like we're all trying to get away from everybody else that we can do it on our own. It's like, no, I am on my own. And so I have to make up a story that helps me make sense of like, how do I survive? Well, I'll, I'll do this on my own. And so we practice this and then we, tr- then we train our children to do, do the same thing. And in fact, it's like, it's like training to teach people that gravity doesn't have nearly as much pull as it really does. So no, it really would, like, if you want to get out of, maybe not the ninth floor, but if you want to get out of the second or third floor of your, of your building and get to your car quicker, you just, just step out the window. Right. It's okay. You'll, you'll be fine. It's not the way the world's made. And we're reaping that harvest, even as we speak. And of course, COVID hasn't made anything any easier. This no, it sure hasn't. Notion, right. So we need the differentiation of other people, of interpersonal, in order for me to see that I need the connection with this very different person. Not that I'm going to be absorbed into them or they're going to be absorbed into me, but we do need interdependently each other in order for us to flourish. Yes. I think that was illustrated in this episode through the help of my neighbor, uh, Willie. <laughs> that, oh, that right, was, man. Yeah, I'm telling yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't heard this episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to that because it, it was a it was a moment for me, you know. Yeah. It was uh yeah. It was a special episode to me personally. So, yeah. I encourage yeah. you to go back and listen to that one. Yeah. Um we then went into the got into the temporal domain and this whole idea of our perception of time and how um we so often look at the future in and with anxiety and the past with regret and how we want to change that from looking at uh, the past by reflecting on it and mm-hmm. not, re- not mm-hmm. necessarily regretting it. And mm-hmm. what was the, f- the switch for the future to the anxiety? Oh, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I need to know if you were listening. Uh, gosh. <laughs> um, the, the way to get rid of anxiety is to have a plan. <laughs> right? Um, I mean, that's what you said. Right. I was listening. Right. I, okay, okay, okay. Not only are you, not only are you correct, but I thought like, like the way to get rid of anxiety is to have somebody not ask you stupid questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm starting to look at this podcast with regret. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. Right. Yeah, it's that's right. Plan to know what your questions are that you're going to have to answer before, like yes. you get asked them. 
Yeah. No, you're right. There, it's, there's it is there's about- no net here, people. Just so you know, <laughs> we haven't talked. We never talk about what we're going to talk about. There's not a net. It's usually me dancing on the high wire, trying to keep up and figure out what's <laughs> what's coming. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm having flashbacks to that hallway in the hotel where we first met. I can oh barely get gosh. down the hallway. I'm laughing so hard. Oh my god! I don't gosh. think you made it down the hallway. Actually, I don't think you 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 made it. You had to take a break. Oh. I'll catch up to you. You go on down to the room where we're all gathering. <laughs> yeah. I'll be there in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah, it does. This this notion of planning, and of course, in 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 each in each of these realms, we talked about these two rails. One rail being anxiety in the future, regret in the past. The other rail being that I can reflect on the past and plan in the future. And either one of those, right, the, 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 the reflection and the planning, you know, there's a very thin line that separates that rail from the other rail. And we, I'm like, I'm, I'm constantly tempted to jump from reflection to regret mm-hmm. and constantly tempted to jump from planning to worrying. And like that planning sometimes means I have to plan right down to the very last thing because what I'm really doing is not planning. I'm obsessively worrying and that's why I have to have all my plans right, you know, to the jot and tittle down. And, um, you know, Jesus has words of wisdom for us. And like, you know, how much can worrying add to your life? Like, it doesn't add a moment to your life. In fact, we know from data that we now have that it does take away from your life. Right. And um, again, I think that, you know, being that we are the only creatures who engage this temporal domain time in the way that we do, uh, one of the other beautiful things about it is that, you know, when we are, you know, we all, we, we all have had these experiences of like when we're doing something that we're really joyfully engaged with, we're in the present moment, largely operating out of our right hemisphere. You know, we get done and two hours have gone by and it doesn't feel like, it feels like 10 minutes. Yeah. And on the other side of the coin, when we are worrying, when we yep. are anxious, when we are bored, all those things, 10 minutes goes by and it feels like two hours. And again, all of that is deeply connected to and related to the degree to which we are isolated. Right. To the degree that I am with someone, that someone is coming to find me, that I'm engaged with someone else, I'm much more able to remain in a posture that my right and left hemispheres are more healthily able to operate in, where I'm much more, more so in this present moment, while I on occasion you know, move to kind of see where we are and where we're going, where we've come from and so forth out of my left hemisphere. And so the beautiful thing about the gospel is that this notion of new heaven, new earth, it's coming. We like to say, as N.T. Wright likes to say, that God's future has stepped into our present moment in Jesus and is helping us practice for this new way of being in the world. And I don't know what eternity is going to feel like. I like, I don't know. But it's going to be a new way in which we do time and in a way in which shame doesn't get to be part of the conversation, mm. which we're really looking forward to. For sure. Yeah. Kurt, as always, it's so good to see you. Okay, so you have mentioned, and we've talked a little bit on the podcast about an event that you have coming up. And I have some details, but I I don't feel fully informed, so I would love to know more. Thanks, Amy. 
Many of you may remember that I have mentioned in the past an upcoming conference that I'm really excited about. The conference is called Connections, and it will be held October 22nd. That's Friday, October 22nd. It's going to be a virtual conference, and it is sponsored by the Center for Being Known. The Center for Being Known is a nonprofit organization that I formed a number of years ago, and its mission and purpose is to create an opportunity for anyone and everyone who is interested in exploring this intersection of interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation and how that can shape our lives no matter where we are working, whether we're working as parents or in schools, as teachers or administrators, if we're lawyers, if we're doctors, if we're secretaries, if we are farmers, no matter what it is that we're doing. We want to know how can the process of being known enable us to flourish in every and all domains of life that we occupy. This conference is the first of its kind that is going to allow folks to have uh, a picture of what that means to apply the principles of being known in four different areas of vocation. We're going to explore what it means to explore that in mental health, what that means in education, what it means in leadership, what it means in ministry. We have four different speakers along with my keynote address. All that's going to be coming to us again on Friday, October 22nd. If you'd like to be part of this conference, and we would love for you to do that, you can find out more about it by going to the link of the organization, the Center for Being Known, at thecbk.org. Not CBK, again, but thecbk.org. And if you have questions about it, you'll find at the bottom of the landing page there that you can contact us at contact us at thecbk.org. Again, the conference is called Connections. I can't wait to have you all join us to have the opportunity to really explore more of what we've been talking about here on this podcast. October 22nd, that's a Friday. Look forward to having you all join us then. So we wrapped up this season with the transpirational domain which is you described as this sort of breath that goes across all the all of the domains. One of the illustrations that you used in the course of that episode that stuck with me was when you were talking about the artist Meiko Fujimara and how he paints with minerals and he has a technique that you were describing where he has flakes of gold in sort of this shaker right mm-hmm. and so he's got a canvas that's that's wet with with paint already and and other minerals and material and he then the the process that he does to add this gold to the to the painting is one that is not a is he can't completely control right, right. i mean he right. can um, he practices it and so he is probably more adept you know than you or i would be but there is also a part of it that you have to accept and he has to accept in this ex- in this experience that it's going to land where it lands that's right and i just that just that that imagery just really stuck with me yeah well and he's not worried about it right he's not worried about it and that's the thing that uh as we are paying attention to each of these previous eight domains. Mm -hmm. We can't pay attention to all of them equally well simultaneously. We can only do one at a time. 
But as we practice going from one to another to another, over time they begin to intersect, kind of like the symphony intersects with each other. And what God really is eager for us to do is to, by bearing his image in the same way that God does not worry about where the paint is landing. But like a master craftsman is allowing it to land where he within his purview, mm-hmm. but he's not worrying about where and how it's landing. He's asking us to not worry about the process of integration. Mm. Simply be in it. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's funny, like Amy's been keeping time. Yeah. Right. And she's, and, and so I start to worry, like we're going to run out of time. We're not going to run out of time. And I, I'll tell you that even right now, as we're doing this, as we're recording right here and now, I've been taking my cues from you. Hmm. Like you see her texts that are coming and mm-hmm. you're leading this interview and you're just doing what you're doing. And I'm like, I'm like a kid watching his dad. The kid looks at his dad or is it his older, is it at his older brother. The kid sees that his older brother's like, okay, the kid's, he's, he's fine. I'm like, and I breathe. And I think like integration's happening right here and now. Yeah. And you know, and even with Amy, Amy's like, she's doing her, like she's yeah. doing the work of like keeping us on track. But like, she said like, you know, time's up, but we have time. Like like this sense, like she's like Mako, like she's like. Right. <laughs> it's gonna land where doing, it's gonna land. Doing, doing the thing. And uh, yeah, so I, I just really wanna thank you for that. And um, uh, that even this episode, even our, even our wrap up episode is, uh, kind of given us opportunity to do the very thing that we've been encouraging you all to pay attention to to do because we really do believe that it will enable you to pay attention to your lives more effectively and therefore be known more deeply and therefore create beauty and goodness in the world more effectively. And to that end, I have something that I want to share with you all. Yes. Yep. And uh, it's going to start, uh, I'll, I'll just try to do this really quickly because I know we don't have a lot of time. Uh, for about 15 years, uh, I had a colleague who worked for me. Her name's Kristen Terry. And she, a few years ago, moved from Northern Virginia to Michigan, where she has now set up her own practice and it's flourishing there. And she is an outstanding clinician and consultant. And she and I together for over many, many years, I mean, she put up with me and she put up with all the, like the new emerging stuff about interpersonal neurobiology and how we're applying that to our psychotherapy work. And she, she's an artist and she, over the course of some training work that we did, she came in with these large, um, cardboard boxes, these cubes that she had made and each cube, she put a, a, a number of the domain, a dom- each a domain of integration. And she would put a, a, some kind of a picture, some kind of figure on the, on this cube that would represent it and the number and some words about it. And so this was really, this was a great teaching technique for us to have these things that people could see and touch. And they were about eight inches by eight inches square. And wouldn't you know it, what has she gone and done? I'm going to share this with each of us, with our our audience here. She has gone and created wooden blocks, wooden blocks that represent each of the nine domains. You can see this one right here. It says the consciousness, the conscious integration. That's domain number one. And she says, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. And then this whole notion of then having a figure like for that. And so for instance, memory integration, she has a figure for a figure of, you'll see like an iceberg that so much of our memory is below the waterline. Right. And so you have a figure, you have a phrase, you have the number and she is selling 
these, this collection of nine domains, these wooden blocks that you can get. And I would say, I want to highlight this. Her name is Kristen Terry. You can, Chris, uh, T-E-R-R-Y, but you can go to connectionblocks.com, but that's C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-O-N-B-L-O-X.com, connectionblocks.com, and you can order a set of these for, I think, a little more than 70 bucks. And uh, they don't come with the tray. I had another friend who, who, made, who made that tray, but these blocks are artistically gorgeous. Beautiful. Solid, uh, solid wood, and um, you know you you can put one out on your counter. You can remember these. Like I, I like I was coming out of my shoes when I saw that she um, had developed these that are copies of these of these wooden boxes. You know these cardboard boxes that she had made for a training uh, some years ago. And so um, I would invite you to you know to use this as uh, an artifact of beauty that you can purchase and that you can arrange in such a way that it can help remind you of all this work that we've been talking about. And uh, thanks be to God for Kristen and her work at using her artistry in the way that she does. And just so grateful for her and um, grateful to have the time to promote that and support that. And I, I asked her, uh, I said, so at what point are you going to have, uh, do you know where you're going to build the small factory that you're going to need when the, the orders start to come in? Right. Because you're going to need a little factory that's going to help you produce all these things. Yeah, they're beautiful. So, Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. What a way to integrate beauty into the integration. Right. right. It's just, exactly. just really, really cool. Um, I do have one last question for you about this season that I, I'm a little bit confused about. I know we don't have a lot of time, but um, what does Kevin Bacon have to do with all this? <laughs> well, okay. Now, if I don't know, but I didn't bring it up. And I think that question is to be directed to you because... I was I, told that we were doing a whole series on the nine domains of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> and then I get here, and he's not even involved. I mean... No. <laughs> well, I thought he was. I thought he was going to be. I thought he was going to be. And then, like, you know, he, he just kind of, like, bailed at the last minute. And we and so I got to come up with these other things. I don't... We're, we're making this up as we go, folks. I mean, you right. know this, like... Because otherwise... But but I mean you know I think it's I think it's a testimony Pepper to how committed you are to studying the material beforehand. You were ready to go with the not not just nine you know domains but the six degrees the nine yes, degrees the of six, Kevin Bacon. The six degrees of of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yes, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Kurt, this has been an amazing season. Um, right on. Those of you that are watching on YouTube, we're going to bring Amy in here in a few minutes with us to continue a little bit of this conversation. Kurt, it's been a great great season mm. um, I'm really looking forward to next season um, yeah. and I know we have a lot of uh, exciting things lined up for that as well yeah, yeah indeed Pepper it's been a pleasure again I'm I, I don't deserve my life and uh, you and Amy are big parts of why that's true and I'm just grateful and looking forward to what we're doing next love you Kurt love you too This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is by Keaton Simons. If you'd like to connect with us, you can visit us on our website, 
beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well, be known.